So John chapter 1, we will begin in verse 31. And verse 31 reads, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed him there. Father, we ask you this morning, God, that through the exposition of your scripture, God, that you will cause it to manifest forth in our hearts, that it would come as wisdom, God, through our application. For we truly want to grab a hold of it this morning. We want to grab it. We want to grasp it, Lord. We want to seize it. We want to lay hold of it. We want to see it in your perspective, not ours, Lord. Because it's only then that you will be glorified. And it's only then that we will attain a more powerful life in Christ. So we look to you this morning, Father, and we ask you in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm sure probably the majority of people in here have smartphones. I think it's very rare to find somebody who doesn't have a smartphone anymore, but majority of people nowadays, even children, have what we call a smartphone, and they're called smartphones for one reason, because they just do so many things. They have so many different apps and so many abilities and, and capabilities. But I'm sure all of us are guilty of not even utilizing a whole lot of those privileges that the phones give us. Either we don't know about them or we do and we just choose not to use them. And that's almost the same that's true of uh, the Word of God. Because the Word of God contains everything that we need, right? To live a fruitful life, a victorious life, a pleasing life to God. But because of the lack of, I would say, the study of the Word of God. Because reading the Word of God is one thing, but when you study it. Okay, today we're going to be in a portion of text. Uh, it's going to be about... 11 verses that normally the normal reader would just skip over them. 
I mean, what's in this little small scripture that's going to be really good and beneficial for me? What can we extract out of it that it's going to uh, be able to be applied in my life, right? But when you do an in-depth study, you begin to find that there's actually a whole lot in there that speaks to us all. And that's what we're going to find today. And, you know, the fact is, is that we come to church. And many people come to church and they go not just here, but everywhere, all across the world, uh, every day, sometimes twice a day, sometimes three times in a week. But they go in and they come out without truly grasping the word of God. Uh, they, they, they get their, their own uh, perception of what the word of God says without what it really says. And so what we try to do is in our best ability by the power of God, to find out what it is that He's truly saying. Yeah, it's important for a lot of reasons. I myself am amazed at the people that I speak with that have a very distorted theology in their believing. This isn't uh, something that I say with, with any kind of arrogance or joy, but it's sad to hear the way that people think when it comes to the Word of God. And when they talk to me and I see the chaos that's in their life and the destruction, I begin to understand why their life is chaotic. Because they don't have a right perception of the Word of God, therefore they can't apply it correctly in their life. So they, have, they go through, for lack of better words, they go through hell and back. And so our goal here is to try to help you and that comes through one word that we would call maturity. Maturity. And the Bible wants us to come to that mature place. Last week, we talked about uh, in the power of Christ, which was the fact that security is going to lead us to a life of stability. If we're secure in who we are in Christ, then we're going to have a stable life in Christ. And this week... I would like us to understand that if we have then, therefore, that stability, that's going to lead us to a life of maturity in Christ. In Christ. It's going to give you that hunger. It's going to give you that desire. It's going to give you that uh, life inside. And what Jesus said, out of your belly, right, will flow rivers of living water. And that's what we're facing today. The, the Jews of all people, right, the, uh, the people who knew it all. They're accusing the Christ himself of blasphemy. And because he's claiming to be uh, as God. And you would have to understand that at this point in their life, though they know a whole lot, they probably know that you and me put together, they're still very immature in their understanding because they truly don't know. They're still lost what Jesus said. He just got through telling them in the previous verses, you don't know me and you can't, you don't follow me. Why? Because you're not my sheep. And so it's important to understand that. And uh, the Bible talks about uh, the flesh. You hear that terminology a lot. You hear about the spirit. And it's very important because hopefully we can put this together by the time we're done. But if we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul preaching to the church in Corinth, which was a very carnal church. There was a lot of problems in the church in Corinth. And in chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, he starts off by telling them that when he came to them, he didn't come with excellence of speech or wisdom declaring uh, the testimony of God, 
But he says that I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I made it up in my mind. That's all that I'm going to be concerned with. I'm not going to be concerned with anything else. That's important. Why? Because I'm not concerned with uh, your happiness in life, per se, or your comfort levels. I'm not concerned with uh, if you have adequate air conditioning in your church or enough chairs. He says, I'm determined, I'm established to know one thing among you, and that's Jesus Christ and him crucified, because that's the whole root of it all. And he says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech, my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, this wisdom that he speaks of comes by the application of the word of God. That is what godly wisdom is. That's what spiritual wisdom is, the application of the word of God. So when we cannot apply it, then we have only left what's called a worldly wisdom. And he says in verse 6, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So he speaks to those that are mature because that's what he's seeking to get them to, that point of maturity. Not perfection, not the fullness of understanding, but just to a mature level. And he says in verse 14, if we go all the way down to 14, he says, but the natural man. Okay, this is the carnal man. This is the sensual man. Does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. So again, this natural man, it talks about the, the, the passions, the, the sensual man, the man who's always going according to the emotions. Of course, we know that's not the, the spiritual one. They're led by the emotions rather than by the spirit. It says they don't receive the things of God. They can't take hold of them. This word that it used there actually means to take with the hand. Now, we talked last week that the hand uh, in the Bible from the very beginning, right? We use that big word, expositional constancy. What it means is that that word has the same symbolical meaning from front to end, and the hand means a, a sort of authority and power. They don't have no authority. They don't have no power. They don't have no understanding. They can't grab a hold of it. But instead, it's foolishness to them. It's what would be called uh, ridiculous, wild, or even silly is what people would say. And many, many people may have even told you, why do you do all of that? Why do you pray so much? Or why do you read? Or why do you even go to church? Why do you sacrifice so much? Why do you tithe like you do? It's, it's silly. You don't have to do all of that. Now, of course, you and I know that we don't have to do it, but we do it because we are children of God and we seek to please God. As a matter of fact, the word that it uses for foolishness is where we get our word for moron. It's not a very, a very a good word, but to the man who is sensual, the man who is carnal, the man who is natural to him, the things of God, they're foolishness. And it also says that he doesn't have the ability to come to that personal knowledge. And we already know that. None of us have that ability. It comes from God. 
And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is talking there of the two covenants that we have now, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. And he's talking about the man Moses when he was up there with God. Remember, he spent time with him. His face was shining. It was brilliant. And so the people couldn't look at him. So he would put a veil upon his face. But Paul says the reason he put on a veil is because it was passing away. Because we know that the law was a picture of things that were. And what was to come was Christ. But Paul says, if the uh, ministry of death, which is the law, if it was glorious, how, mu how much more glorious is going to be the new covenant in Christ? And in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. So until this very single day, until the day that Jesus was having this uh, small disagreement with these Jews, and until this very day, that veil remains on those who are not in Christ. Now to those who are in Christ, it's taken away. And verse 15 says, but even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies not only on their eyes, but on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, Lord, the veil is taken away. So it's Christ, our righteousness, takes that veil away. And when a veil is removed, now we see. And 17 says, now this, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is liberty. And I'm also going to turn to... Well, the past chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And in verse 14, he says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Okay, He causes us to triumph, you and me, in every situation. And what does he do? He diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Us who are in Christ, he diffuses that fragrance, that aroma of knowledge. It's well-pleasing. He makes it manifest to who? To the world, to the people who are watching. And verse 15 says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Okay, notice that we are to Christ or to God, the fragrance of Christ among those that are perishing and among those who are being saved, among both of them. To God, we're the fragrance of Christ. But verse 16 says, to one, we're the aroma of death leading to death. To the other, we're the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Death leading to death, life leading to life, the aroma. We have to understand that fragrance it speaks of sacrifice. The sacrifice. First, the sacrifice of Christ, but then the sacrifice of our lives, right? We present ourselves as living sacrifices as unto God. But if you go back to the very first time that that sweet-smelling savor, the Bible says, the King James, or the aroma, is in Genesis chapter 8 when Noah and his family were rescued and the waters receded and 
they got off the boat. And God gave them favor. And it says that Noah sacrificed of every bird and every animal unto God. And it was a sweet smelling aroma unto him. Now for God, why was it sweet smelling? Because he knew what was about to come. And he was pleased at just the thought of what was to come. Uh, the cross of Christ. Um, but for you and I, we are a sweet smelling aroma. Through our sacrifice. Through our dying to ourselves and living for Christ. Well, that's important because uh, sacrifice doesn't happen if we're carnal. Sacrifice can't happen if we're immature. It only happens through the mature Christian. So in verse 31, it, it says that the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, many good works I've shown you from my father. For which of those do you stone me? I've only done good. What do you want to stone me for? But it says again, because remember, uh, the previous chapters, they tried to stone him. They tried to take hold of him. They wanted to kill him. And it's important to note that religion, immaturity, which is the same, they're both in one, will always lead oneself through the same ineffective cycle. Some of us have probably been there. I know that I've been there before. That same cycle because I'm going through the motions or I'm immature. And as a matter of fact, the definition of that right there, the word for it is insanity. Doing the same thing and we expect something different. Maybe how we treat our wives or how the wives treat husbands or how we're treating our kids or so many different areas that we can apply it in. And it's always ineffective. That's what these Jews are doing because they're not willing to believe. They don't want to reason with the Christ, but instead they want to accuse him. They're seeking validity for themselves, not for God. This isn't about the kingdom of God. This is about themselves. This is about their traditions and their beliefs and what they want to understand. But he said, many good works I've done. I mean, he did. They were excellent. They were magnificent. They were beautiful. And all of them were in good character and nature. They were pure. Every single work that he did, opening the eyes of the blind, opening deaf ears, raising people from the dead, healing the sick. What is so wrong with that, right? I've done so many good works. So why do you want to stone me? Why do you want to put me away? For which one? And they tell him, for a good work, we don't stone you. But it's because of blasphemy and you make yourself to be God. Blasphemy. Blasphemy is a very powerful word. It's not actually used today, but uh, many people blaspheme, right? It, it means to speak ill or evil. It's ill-willed. It's slander. But they're accusing him of blaspheming against God. Now, we know that he's not blaspheming against God. He's just speaking the truth. But the first mistake that these Jews make right here that we see is that they're not acknowledging that he is God. Of course, they said, you being a man, you're only a man, but you're making yourself equal to God. Now, also a good point to make there. Because if, if Jesus is demonstrating who the Father is and who he is through his works, then we could say that a person doesn't become something because of a title. Rather, they become something because of what they do. 
Can we agree on that this morning? Number one, who? Jesus. He did only that which he saw from the Father, what he heard from the Father. What about a pastor? A pastor is not just a pastor because he has a, 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 a doctorate's degree or a, or a license or a certificate, but he's a pastor because his works prove that he's a pastor. He cares for the sheep. He loves the sheep. He doesn't just beat them down, but he also doesn't fatten them up, fatten them up to lead them to the slaughter. He cares for them and he wins their trust over. What about a father? What about a dad? A dad's not a dad just because he um, had a child. But a father is a father when he takes care of his children, when he teaches them uh, wisdom, the ways of, of not just God first, but also teaching them the ways of the world, teaching them uh, moral ethics, how to be, how not to be. Even when it comes down to a president, right? A president's not a president just because he has a title. A president is a president because he leads our country in a way that he should lead it. According to our Constitution, which we always talk was what? Uh, founded by the Word of God, the principles of God. One nation, right? Under God. Not under anything else. So we are whatever we are because of what we do. That can even go to us as being Christians. We're not Christians because we say we're Christians. We're Christians because of what we do. We demonstrate the righteousness of Christ that he's imputed upon us. Why? Because we belong to him. We've been set free, right? It says that the Lord is spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's no more bondage. Then why are a lot of Christians walking around like they're still in bondage? They have sour faces. They're angry. Uh, they don't want to uh, reason with people, but they're just set in their ways. They're more interested in defending their denomination rather than defending the word of God. Those are the important things. But all of that comes from immaturity. So Jesus responds to them. How? With the word of God. The best way that we can always do it. But you have to understand that a lot of times when we use scripture, we want to use the right scripture, not the wrong scripture. But of course, Jesus always uses the right one and he directs them to Psalm 82. He says, isn't it written in your law? This is your law. This is what you adhere to. This is what you follow. Which is a, a, a good point in, in apologetics. When you're trying to defend the faith, you're talking to someone who's a, a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, it's good sometimes to understand their doctrine because you point them back to their doctrine through the error that it's in and the word of God, and then they have no way out of it. But Jesus said, this is, isn't it written in your law? Not just it's written, but it's written in your law. I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him who the father sanctified and said it to the world, you are blaspheming? Now, Jesus uses the perfect scripture here because, so we have to understand where they're at, right? 
right outside uh, of the temple in that area. Well, in this area, there was a lot of judging going on. Why? Because this was the place where the Sanhedrin used to set up camp. The Jews, this is where they would have hearings and they would listen to what uh, cases of people who had accusations. And this is where it all went down. So there was a lot of judging going around in that area. So G uh, Jesus uses a psalm that actually just gets right to the point. But he says, if, if this scripture that's written in your law says you are God's, why are you coming against me? So to understand, then we look at Psalm 82. And verse 1 says that God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. So this is a psalm of Asaph. Now, what we need to understand here, and we see, you'll see in your Bible, that it's a little g, God. It's not a big g. This means that they're magistrates and they're rulers. They're, they're people with authority. Somebody with as much authority as a president or an emperor or a king or a judge, right? Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. That's who he's, that's who he's talking to, Asaph is. Now, remember that the priests from the very beginning, they were unjust with the people. They were taking uh, the, the, the more than enough of the sacrifices for themselves. They were keeping some. They were selling the rest. Um, they were just doing and having their way. Well, Asaph pleads with God. And of course, he says, first of all, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. And if this isn't prophetic, I mean, I don't know what else is because God himself, Jesus Christ right now is standing in the congregation, in the assembly of the mighty ones, the Sanhedrin and all the rulers. But Asaph says in verse two, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and the fatherless, do justice, justice to the afflicted and needy, deliver the poor and needy, free them from the hand of the wicked. Deliverance, God, is what we need. That's what Asaph is saying. Nothing's happening to these unjust rulers. Actually, King David said something similar. He said, I, my feet almost stumbled from under me because I looked at all these wicked people and they were like fattened calves. Not, nothing was happening. It said that the, the eyes of their children were bulging out. I mean, they were prosperous and David was perplexed and said, I do not understand this. Why are they prospering? But yet us who are trying to live for God were persecuted, were, were dealt with unrighteously. But then he goes on to say, then I went into the house of the Lord. And the Lord showed him that he sets them up in slippery places that in his time they will fall. And this is what Asaph says. He says, they do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundation of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods and all of you are children of the Most High. He's talking about these magistrates, these rulers, and he says, you're gods, you're, you're magistrates. You have authority, but you're being unjust. Verse 7 says, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. They're walking around in darkness. Why? What does darkness signify? They're still lost. They still don't have a knowledge. They're not saved. And in verse 8, he finishes and says, Arise, O God, judge of the earth. Now, is he speaking to God? Or is he speaking to the Messiah? 
Because if you finish it, he says, for you shall inherit all nations. Now that's speaking prophetically about the Messiah. Because everything belongs to God already. But, it, but the nations are promised to the Messiah. And so he's prophetically speaking. And Jesus uses this psalm in front of these magistrates, these rulers, to tell them, yes, it's, it's double affirming. I am God. Of course I'm saying that I'm God. And to prove it, I'm going to use your own scripture, your own law, that you would understand that it is true. It's a psalm, a cry for justice in the midst of injustice. And that's what Jesus is crying, the same thing there. And as a matter of fact, it should be our cry in the midst of injustice that we face today. Now, I'm not talking about simply an election and I'm not talking about um, political things like that. I'm talking about the injustice of the world, the injustice, of course, that's going out there, the injustice that's on TV, the injust injustice that's in music. But what about the injustice that is in the church? What about the injustice that maybe even resides within our own homes sometimes, that as men, uh, we don't want to say nothing, or as women, uh, we're complacent as well, uh, whatever it is. We as well have to be prophetic, not in the sense of um, foretelling, but in the sense of foretelling. The prophetic voice of God. Perfect example, John the Baptist, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That prophetic voice, the prophetic voice that Nathan had when he came to David and said, you're that man. And he was cut to the heart. In the area that Jesus was being judged and condemned, he simply used scripture for justification. And that's what we should do. But how can we use it if it's not properly, properly understood? These were the gods that he spoke of, the Sanhedrin, right there where they were at. Okay, you'd have to be there to understand what was really going on, because if you're not, then you won't understand the, uh, the analogy that he's making behind there, that they would get the point. But regardless of how much the word of God is denied, regardless of how much the word of God is changed, regardless of how much the word of God is suppressed, nothing can or ever will deny the power of the truth that is contained within it. The truth is going to stand. Whether people deny it, the truth still stands. Whether people say, no, you can go to heaven by being a good person, that doesn't deny the truth that Jesus says, I'm the only way and no one can make it but through me. So in verse 37, he says, if I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. OK, if I'm not doing what God sent me to do, don't believe me. Pretty plain and simple. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, believe in what you're seeing that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in Him. Believe the labors, believe the deeds that I'm doing. Of course, can the demon open the eyes of a blind? That's what they said in verse 21. Can the demons uh, open the ears of somebody who can't hear? Can the demons raise someone from the dead in this manner to glorify God? Can the demon release someone into true freedom? Of course not. Believe those works. 
Why? That you may become acquainted through experience. These are the words that are used here. Know and believe. Of course, believe, right? It's the Greek word pastuo. It's to believe, to have that soul reliance upon Christ. But we talked a few weeks ago about the four different knowledges that are in Scripture. This is the fourth one. This is the gnosko. This is the relational one, experiential. Experience this so that you can become acquainted and it leads to a belief in Christ. Because a lot of people have a lot of head knowledge and understanding of Scripture. And I've talked to a lot of them, but they lack the relation with God. They lack that experience. They don't have a true experience. They've never experienced it. And it's not simply just experiencing miracles in his life. I'm talking about experiencing uh, walks through the wilderness walks through the fire and experiencing the fact that God has been there with you every single step of the way. You become acquainted with him. Then you'll know that the father's in me and I in him. And if that's true, then we must also be one with the father, with Christ. We must become one with him. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 17 the Apostle Paul, again, writing to the church in Corinth, he just got through telling them to flee from sexual immorality. He just got through telling them uh, that they uh, had been saved. They used to be those things, but they no longer are idolaters, revilers, and so many other things. He says, but he that is joined to the Lord is one in spirit. You become one with Christ. That's why the Bible says what fellowship has light to do with darkness. What is it? What is uh, what does Christ have to do with Belial? And the Apostle John in John chapter 17, verse 21, says that they may all be one. Jesus is praying to the Father before he before he goes to the cross. He knows his time is short, so he prays for the believers. He prays those who are his, and he says that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be one in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. See, because if we're not one with Christ, if we're not demonstrating the, the, the truth of Christ, not with our mouth, but with our lives. See, if they don't add up together, if they're not parallel, our life and the words that we speak, they're not going to come to a belief. They're not going to believe. And the reality and the truth of Scripture, and I would probably say that is one of the biggest charges against Christianity. Why people are turned off. Why people don't want to come to church. Why people don't want to come to Christ. They don't want to come to Christ. Why? Because, yeah, this man, this woman, they, they preached to me and it was a pretty good word too. But when I filtered it through their life, they don't even live it themselves. So why do I want to come to Christ? Right? It's our testimony. It's our testimony where sometimes we don't even have to preach to them. We don't even have to tell them about Scripture, but they see how we handle things and say, how can you, how, why are you always happy? Why do you always seem like you just uh, got the greatest news in the world? Because we do every morning, we're reminded about the greatest news that what? We're on our way to a better destination. To stand before the risen Christ, if we're in Christ, right? Now, if we don't have joy because of it, if we don't smile, we don't rejoice, then you might want to reevaluate where you're at. That's the reality of Scripture this morning. Because not one person cannot re 
Think about that and not rejoice. If you don't rejoice, then you'd have to question the same way that if I went and I slammed a hammer on your foot right now and you just sat there, you're probably a dead corpse. But if you screamed, it meant one thing, I'm alive. What if the hammer of Scripture is laid upon our spiritual being? The truth of it. Does it cause us to rejoice? Does it cause us to weep? Because if it doesn't, then we're spiritually dead. And just because we're sitting in the four walls of a church, that doesn't justify us as Christians. It's that assurance in our heart that we talked about last week, that we stand fixed and established in the power of Jesus Christ. I know whom I've believed. I know who's called me and I know who I belong. Because remember, Jesus said, if you're mine, you're going to hear my voice. You're going to follow. You're going to do. Why? Not because you have to. I'm free now. I'm free to do as, as, as I would desire to do, but I desire to do your will, God. When the psalmist says, ask the desires of your heart and they shall be given to you. It's not just whatever you want. I mean, if that's the case, then let me start praying for some money and for a bigger house and for a bigger car. But that's not what scripture talks about. But see, when it's understood wrong from people, oh, yeah, let me pray for this, this job and let me pray for more money and finances. And I want to knock out husband or wife and let me pray for children that just uh, they fly a straight and narrow and there's no problems. But that's not the way that it works. We pray according to the desires of God. The prayers that God, if, if, if this is the job that I have, that I'm going to live paycheck to paycheck, so be it, God. Help me instead. Don't make the paycheck increase, but make my heart increase to where I'm content with what you have given to me. Help me to be a good steward of that. If my children aren't walking a straight and narrow, God, then break them to their core of their heart, Lord, that they would come to repentance and believe upon you. Those are the spiritual prayers. That's the, that's the godly man or woman. That's the spiritual man or woman, not the natural man. The natural man is going to pray natural prayers. But those prayers aren't dangerous. The spiritual prayers are dangerous. Like the one that Jesus prayed in the garden, right? Lord, I'm weary. And if this cup can pass, then so be it, Lord. But if not, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. If God called us, then God will give us the grace to stand through anything that's set before us. Our Christianity must demonstrate and validate the works of God becoming inside of us and through us in our lives. It must match. It must be demonstrated. It must prove the truth of the word of God. It's not going to do no good to quote scripture and then to go and just be angry all the time. Now, are we free to do many things? Yeah, we've talked about it. When we went over 1 Corinthians, um, we're, we're pretty understanding of the freedom that we have in Christ. We have a liberty. But are all those things profitable for us? Much less are they profitable for the kingdom of God. And that's something that the mature Christian understands. Because these people, these Jews, they're accusing the Messiah, the Savior of the world. They are actually blaspheming Him. But they're trying to accuse God. 
The same way that some people try to blaspheme against us and accuse us when we try to present the truth, but they're actually, they're the ones that are blaspheming. They try to turn the tables around, but that's the ways of the gates of hell. They try to flip everything around. So in verse 39, it says that they sought again to seize him. Here's that word again, again. They're going through the same procedures again that immaturity and, and uh, religion does again to seize him. But he escaped out of their hand. They wanted to lay a hold of him. They wanted to grab him. And a connection that I want to make this morning is that many, aside from these people here, many will seek to lay hold of the word of God with no avail. Instead, the word of God escapes out of their hand. Remember the hand? It's a power of understanding. It escapes from their hand because they're not coming with the right intention. Oh, because I've met a lot of people. A lot of people have come in this place and they're seeking breakthrough. They're seeking a restoration in a relationship or they're seeking uh, whatever it is. And as soon as they get it, never to be seen anymore. Never to be seen anymore. Is that pleasing to God? I mean, forget uh, a ministry or a minister. Yeah, that, that doesn't matter. But what about God? Now, of course, God sees all of those things. But they don't grasp it. They don't understand. Why? Because their mind, they have the wrong intentions. So they seek as well to lay a hold of the Word of God. But there's no progress because the Word of God escapes. The word for escape means from one place to another. Kind of like in one ear. And out the other, that same way. That was me. Well, that was me many years ago. Hear the word of God coming in here and out the other ear. Couldn't stay awake for five or ten minutes because it was, well, truth be told, I was spiritually dead. I was dead in my trespasses, as the book of Ephesians says. But then God gave me life. And that's when we rejoice. That is when a person rejoices. I mean, we've said it time and time again. What good is it going to do for us to be topical and to talk about superficial things? Uh, because it's only going to be temporary. Matthew 6 tells us that we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else will fall into formation. So they tried to seize him and they were not able to. And verse 40 says that he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John, he didn't perform no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. No signs, no miracles, no wonders, but there was many who believed in him there. So Jesus also did something again, but he did something that was profitable. He went beyond the Jordan to a place where something was being fruitful. Something was happening out there. To the other side, it means to pierce. Like allowing the word of God to pierce to the other side of our heart, to pierce, to cut us to the heart. To pray that dangerous prayer and say, God, cut me. Cut me, God. If I'm wandering, if I um, am being disobedient, if I'm not listening, God, pierce me. Cut me to the heart, God. 
Cause me to have restlessness within my soul that I wouldn't sleep until I hear from you, God. Can we pray those kind of prayers? He went into the place. The word means opportunity. He went to an opportune place. It's an occasion for acting, for demonstrating something out. Now, this is the place is beyond the Jordan. Now, something for us to understand about the Jordan. Okay, the Jordan River. When we look at the Old Testament, if many of you aren't aware, there was two splittings of the water in the Old Testament. We all know the great one, right? The splitting of the Red Sea. And they all crossed. But there was a second splitting. And this was the man Joshua. And the river Jordan was split so that they could cross into the promised land. Okay, everything in the Old Testament is symbolical. The crossing of the Red Sea is uh, symbolical of water baptism. Okay, the crossing into the promised land, the crossing of the Jordan is symbolical of the baptism of the Spirit of God. And when a person is baptized in the Spirit of God, a person enters into something called maturity. Maturity, that's very important to understand. Because we need that maturity or we're going to keep on going in circles. We're going to live a life like the Israelites going in circles, complaining and saying, I remember the onions and the leeks and the beets that we had over there in Egypt in captivity. Women might say, I remember that man I used to have. Yeah, he beat me once in a while, but he uh, uh, really paid my bills really well. Or, or the man might say, man, that woman was very good looking. She cheated on me from time to time, but she was good looking and she always cooked for me. You get the wrong mentality and you keep going in circles and circles and you enter into toxic relationships. Uh, you enter into jobs that you're not supposed to have. You just have civil unrest in your life. And the first thing that we do is what? The devil is a liar. When it's not the devil, it's our own decision. So we want to go to this promised land, this place of maturity through the baptism of God's spirit. And it's in that place that we start to understand Scripture can't be broken. Scripture is true from beginning in Genesis to the end of Revelation. There's nothing wrong. This is infallible. There's no mistakes in this. Oh, a lot of people are going to say, oh, that was written by man. There's mistakes. No, that's blasphemy right there because this word is true. Whether we want to believe it or not, it's true. Whether you talk to a person who is an unbeliever and they say, I don't believe that Jesus is the only way I'm going to go to hell. If that's what you want to believe, that's fine. But this word still stands true. You can't take away from it. And so we, we uh, through maturity, we begin to understand it so that we can hand it over to others. Because in this place, John was there. What did he do? He preached repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's, in, it's within your grasp. It's within your understanding. All you have to do is believe. Repent and believe. But they didn't want to. But here it says that many who were there, they believed. Because scripture cannot be broken. Now, in the Old Testament... There's also two instances of them wanting to stone what we would call a type of Christ. We have the man Moses in Exodus chapter 17. Moses is a type of Christ. And in 1 Samuel chapter 30, we have David, who is also a type of Christ. And in both of those, they wanted to stone them. The people were in an outrage. They wanted to stone them. 
In Exodus chapter 17, because they were thirsty, they wanted water. Moses cried out to God, said, they're near stoning me. So God said, strike the rock and I will cause water to flow from it. Now we know that that is a picture of the Lord being struck on the cross. And after he struck, his promise of the Holy Spirit comes to everyone who believes upon him. Those are the rivers of water that flow forth from our belly, that quench our thirst. And in 1 Samuel 30, we have David. The Amalekites came and they occupied the land. They stole the women, the children. They stole everything. David came back. Everyone was weary when they found out. They were at the point of wanting to stone David. David cried out to God and God came through. But in both of those instances, if you go back and read it, uh, I won't go back and read them, but if you go back and read them, 1 Samuel 30, Exodus 17, there was this same uh, group, this same nation that was a problem, was a thorn in their flesh, and this is the ones called the Amalekites. The Amalekites were symbolical of the flesh. That's why when uh, Samuel told King Saul to destroy the Amalekites, even their children, even their cattle. And somebody says, how can God uh, command children to be destroyed? That's why. Because they're symbolical of, the, of uh, the, the flesh and the sin that it produces. And see, sometimes we think that sin is harmless because it's small and it's cute. But just like children, it begins to grow. And the prophet said, destroy all of it. Well, King Saul was disobedient. He didn't do it. So Samuel was upset. Samuel grabbed a sword and he slaughtered them all. See, we're, because we're called to kill the flesh and the desires of it. The, the carnal nature, the passions that we have within, it's a hard thing to do. As a matter of fact, it is impossible without the help of God. But the Amalekites, the flesh, this can only be done when you're living a spirit-filled life. When you're mature in Christ, that's the only way. And that's the importance of it. Because Jesus, he left all this condemnation. I mean, he didn't act crazy. He didn't start trying to argue back. He used scripture with them. And he said a few words. And what did he do? He went back beyond the Jordan to where there was more maturity. And did he have to do signs and miracles and wonders? He didn't have to do nothing. But it says many believed upon him there. Because after we get to that mature point, we don't have to necessarily see God moving in certain instances for us to continue to believe because we pray sometimes, right? I know that we have. We've prayed, God, this person needs healing and we're praying. Your word says that we can and we anoint them with oil, but nothing happens. Well, we got to trust God. But the immature person is going to throw a fit and storm out of the room. But the mature person will still believe. Maturity is very important we come to church not simply to worship not to gather together but mainly to become equipped so that when we go out there we can equip others we don't come for no other reason we don't come to uh, meet with friends or people that we uh, like or to come have the donuts or the coffee or or nothing of that matter we don't even come so that the music can please us we come so that we can be pleasing to god so that we can comfort one another so that we can be equipped but if we're not being equipped then what what good is it doing i think solomon would probably repeat this he'd say it's vanity Vanity upon vanities. 
Maturity is what we want to seek after. And that's what we strive for. And it, it, it comes through uh, Christ, but we have to be willing. See, these people that were lost, that he said, you're not my sheep. They didn't want to. They didn't want to have nothing with it. They were not going to believe it. As a matter of fact, Jesus died. He ascended into heaven. And they didn't believe until this day. They still don't believe. Now, Romans tells us that there's coming a point where those who belong to Christ, they are going to believe. And we pray for that day. But the time for, right, for us Gentiles, it's here right now. What are we waiting for if we haven't responded, right? And if we have, then we seek that mature life. That's how we're going to be those Christians, right? We all like to read about the A.W. Tozers and the Charles Spurgeons and, and all the tons of pilgrims that were out there that were mighty men of God. You want to know something this morning? Just as mighty as God moved in those men and women, He can move in us. But all we have to do is broaden our hearts and seek after Him. That's something encouraging for us this morning. Because if we don't, then that's when we become tired and weary and that's when we become complacent and apathetic and now it's just not so much of a joy to read the Bible or to be in the things of God. And that's why now uh, it's just so easy to just show up to church late because it's whatever. It's no big deal. What's stirring in our hearts this morning? We don't show up late for work. Now if we do, there'll be a discipline. There's consequences. But thank God there's no consequences in the church, right? When a person shows up late, and this isn't to condemn anyone, but this is just to say, where are you at this morning? See, we're, we're called to receive soul-searching words. That's what I desire. Give me something that's going to cause me while I'm laying on my pillow to start thinking and evaluating about the things that are happening in my life. If your soul is not being stirred, then it's stagnant. And that's not a good place to be at. And we help one another out as we bear the marks of Christ to seek after that place of maturity. That's the promised land for you and me this morning. That is the promised land where there's uh, the flowing of milk and honey. There's still going to be war there. There's still going to be battles. But with everyone, there's going to be a victory. God, when we read your word, Our prayer should always be that you would, God, that you would pierce us, that you would pierce us all. There's not a single one of us who doesn't need that piercing. Every time we come, Lord, not just to be reminded of the things that we're not doing right, but also to be reminded of your promises. There are so many of them, God, that we could stand here for days talking about your promises that are yes and amen in you, Jesus. And we rejoice at those promises. The promises that you who begun a good work are faithful to finish it. And we can be confident of that. The promises that you'll see us through. The promises that you'll never see us forsaken or begging for bread. Oh, so many promises. They're more vast than the seas, God. But what good are those promises going to do if we don't understand the basic truth of your word, God? If we can't get to a place of maturity, because without maturity, we can't be obedient. And we see in the Old Testament that disobedience opened the door to curses in the lives of the Israelites. Father, show us this morning. 
Is there any open doors, God, that we need to close? Is there any areas of disobedience? How be it small or great, God, it doesn't matter. None of us is perfect in here. But we know that you're faithful. And we know now that unlike the Old Testament, God, your mercy, it triumphs over judgment. You don't want to judge us, God. You want to be merciful upon us. So, God, restore us this morning. Restore the joy of our salvation, God. Teach us, Lord, to be satisfied with you and with you alone. Father, so that we can make you known to the world, that we may be spoken of in times uh, to come, Lord, that we, when we depart this earth, should you tarry, God, that we may be spoken of the same way that people speak of the pilgrims and the apostles, God. You're seeking. You're looking to and fro. And all you want is someone to say, Hear my Lord. Send me. Use me. Let that be the cry of our heart this morning, God.